Today is Zoe's Hanukkah, so I want to wish everyone ahead of time to have a wonderful, blessed completion of the Hanukkah. We've been talking the last three sessions about framing the narratives of the patriarchs uh, in a veil of tears, meaning if I would look at it from an oblique angle, we talked about Esau's, Esau's three tears, and we talked about Jacob's tears on meeting Rachel. And I want to complete the cycle today with uh, Joseph's tears and next week with Benjamin's tears. And then I hope to be able to wrap it together uh, in some kind of framing narrative in which uh, I hope that you will share my rhetoric <laughs> and look at those tears in an existential way, the way we can relate to these narratives personally as we uh, heal from our own psychic trauma. So let me start by sharing with you the first screen, which is basically looking at the Joseph cycle in a, in a very interesting way. The Joseph cycle, which is one of the four cycles, right? There's the creation cycle, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. Fishbane, in his uh, book on ancient Israel, was the first to identify these cycles. The Joseph narrative is structured not in an ad hoc or haphazard manner, uh, but along a well-conceived and deliberate line. In fact, by all accounts, it is the most literally unified narrative in Genesis, perhaps in the whole of the Chumash. John Skinner called it the most artistic and most fascinating of Old Testament biographies, and our own Nachum Sarna from Brandeis called it unparalleled continuity of narrative. Now, when you read these 446 verses in Bereshis, you are struck by the craft, uh, the literary crafting. Rarely in Western literature has form been woven into content, pattern sewn into meaning, structure forged into theme with greater subtlety or success. And the result is the Yosef cycle of profound paradox that first reveals, then resolves itself in absolute symmetry. And I'm showing you here that there is a chiastic structure uh, to the story. Now, what is a chiasmus? A chiastic structure comes from the Greek letter chi, in which there's an X, and at some point in the middle, the X crosses over. And it's a well-defined, consists of a series of two or more elements, followed by a presentation of corresponding elements in reverse order. So for us, and I color-coded it, there is one, two, three, four, five elements in one order, and the same five elements in reverse order, leaving what I call the punchline or the chiasmus, the X. And there are literary and word comparisons, which we don't have time to go into, between the hostility of the brothers and the reassurance of the brothers, between the death of Jacob and the parent death of Joseph. And light words are being repeated to show uh, that this was a conscious, not an unconscious, ploy by the writer, the narrator. And the crossing point is what? It is the genealogy of Israel. It is not that we start with A, the hostility of the brothers, and end with Joseph's reconciliation with the brothers, but by using the chiastic structure, uh, outer sandwich, a middle jam, 
a middle layer of bread, then comes, you know, a condiment, then another layer, and finally you get to the punchline where the meat is, or whatever it is, you see that he has buried within this otherwise family affair what is the most important thing, which is that Joseph realizes that his whole life has been come to bring down the children of Israel so that they can survive the famine and that they can prosper. Uh, in a sense, uh, he has, in, the, in this chiasm, he's actually surrendering to the larger family of the children of Jacob. Now, if we look at Joseph through the perspective of weeping, then we find that we actually have, more than any of the other patriarchs, seven scenes of weeping. Seven scenes. And I want to share with you the chiastic structure of those weepings. And if we did that, we would find that there are three weepings followed by the main punchline, the chiasm, where he falls upon Benjamin's neck and weeps, followed by the last three, which have to do with Jacob coming down to Egypt and the crying. And I want to concentrate today on these three scenes and what is occurring because they all say that he wept. And so what, what is happening uh, to the tears of Joseph when we look at these three scenes? At the center of the drama played out over the final third portion of Sefer Bracious, we find the tangled web of relationships in Yaakov's household. And like a thread running through all the acts and scenes of this tragedy, there's one rather surprising motif. The progress of the mighty battle waged by an innocent young man against the cabal of brothers, motivated by their fear and their judgmental attitude by rejection and suspicion. And throughout this whole narrative, we find in these seven episodes one common element of the drama, leaving its mark on the events, Bechi, the weeping. Its presence is felt throughout the narrative. It is manifest at certain critical junctions, either as a reaction or as an impetus. Its appearance is not symmetrical. For instance, we never see the brothers weeping. They are a group of practical men of action who plan, execute, and improvise. Even at their most difficult, terror-filled moments, they keep their wits about them and try to plan ahead. Where necessary, they scheme and plot. Even after Yaakov's death, in chapter 50, they hatch a scheme to protect themselves from Yosef's supposed wrath. There is no such weeping in the case of Yosef's brothers. Their attitude is altogether pragmatic, practical, and unsentimental. And yet, we see in Yosef's case, we're going to go just very quickly through the scenes. The first instance is he turned away from them and wept. That's when the brothers appear before Yosef, he hears them talking, and the Torah narrates, he turned away from them and wept. The second instance is when Binyamin finally appears before Yosef in 4330. Here he sees for the first time Benjamin. They have to bring Benjamin. And he finally appears in 4330. And what does it say? Vayares bin Yomim Ochiv ben Imo. Ben Imo. Not just Benjamin, he had a number of half brothers, but it's his full brother. Vayoma Hazeachichem. And he 
pretends and says, Is this your brother, Hakoton, Asher Amate Elov? And now what is his response? By Yamaher Yosef, Joseph hurries Kinichmaru Rachamov. Interesting expression, right? His 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 Rachamim Nichmaru. And he's overcome with feeling. Nichmaru Rachamov. And Rashi tells us he provides the Medrash to provide a subtext to his weeping. Joseph's compassion is stirred, not simply by nostalgia and love for his true brother Benjamin, but if I can read Rashi, he says, he was overcome with feeling. He says, do you have a full brother from your mother? He answers, I had a brother, but I don't know where he is. Do you have children? Yes, I have two, 10 children. What are their names? Bella, Becher, etc. Uh, what do these names mean? And now Benjamin replies, each of the children's name reflects the absent brother that he lost, that he doesn't know where he is, Joseph. For instance, what do the names mean? Benjamin says, they are all for my brother and the troubles that have befallen him. Bella, because he was swallowed up among the nations. Becher, because he was the firstborn to my mother, Bechor. Hupim, because he did not see my chuppah. And nor did I see it here. Ard, because he went down among the pagans. In this brilliant midrashic interpretation of Benjamin's naming his children after Joseph's absence, through all those years, out of Benjamin's sight, he has become an object of imagination and regret for his brother. The naming of Benjamin's sons corresponds to the enigma that has inspired the naming of his own sons. It is clearly he who takes the initiative in eliciting information from Benjamin about the meaning of his son's names, as though he seeks precisely the mirroring consolation that Benjamin gives him. In this fusion of absence and presence, Zornberg tells us, of alienation and empathy, this understanding of Joseph's lostness to himself, Benjamin has recorded through the years of separation. And it is that recording of loss that says, Vayamaher Yosef Kinichmu Rachamov. His Rachamim was sold, it was opened, it was exposed. Vayavakesh Livchos. And remember the word, Vayavakesh. He doesn't allow himself the luxury of crying. He wants to cry. Vayavu Hachadra. And then he doesn't want to show them that he's crying. Not even his brother. He goes to a private room, Vayevchshom. And not only that, he Vayirchadzponov. Now he's got makeup rushing down from his eyes. Uh, Egyptian blue makeup, and now he has to wash his face. Vayetse, and he comes out. Vayit apek. And now he is controlled, composed. Vayoma Simulaham, serve the meal. Let's get on with the meal. He would not reveal in this first episode exactly how he feels. When we go to the second time, which would be the next time he cries, now we, we come to, the brothers come back, and this time round, this is the most dramatic encounter between Yosef and his brothers. Chapter 45, verse 2. And now, Velo Yochol Yosef Lehistapek. Before we said, he came out of the washroom, and he was able 
to compose himself and said, okay, let's eat. Now, the low, this episode of weeping, lo yochol Yosef lehistapek lechol hanimtsaim olof. He is unable, he is unable to hold himself, to control himself, to compose himself. And this time, he realizes in this act of incomposure, And so he kicks the whole court out, and he's alone now with his brothers. Amad Ish his Vada Yosef, and no one was with him except him and his brothers. Kolo And this time he allows himself the luxury of the outburst. He gives his voice to weeping. He allows himself to be overcome by the emotion. Not only that, he's not even quiet about it. Vayishmu Mitzrayim, Vayishma Beis Paro. Listen how the dramatic increase in, in irony. He gives his voice to crying, and not only Mitzrayim and the whole Beis Paro heard it was so loud. And then he reveals himself in this climactic moment. Vayome Yosef Elochav Ani Yosef, Haodavichai, is my father still alive? Now, when we come back to these three episodes that represent the first part of the chiasm, what do we see? And what we see is, coming up to the chiastic structure, when he weeps on Benjamin, and Benjamin weeps on him, we have number one, and I call this the transformation uh, of the weeping. The narrative as a whole is linked by a chain of weeping, in changing circumstances at different times in varying contexts. First, the weeping has no uniform monolithic motivation or manifestation. It is a profound and diverse expression, both inherent nature and its roots. There can be tears of sorrow, joy, mourning, celebration, collapse, excitement, helplessness, courage, supplication, despair, guilt, self-rebuke or repentance. But in this first one, he's still able to control himself. He turns away able to cry by changing his body posture. Just by turning away from them, he still controls his emotion. The second time, he hurries out alone by Yamaher. He, he, he can't control it, but he can control enough to go into a chamber to weep alone and out of earshot. No one can hear him. And finally, the fully voiced weeping in public that all could hear. And these various instances of weeping we must consider those instances in which Yosef refrains from crying, because here it is quickly apparent that at the most bitter and difficult times, he doesn't cry. Even at the bitterest moments in his life, he's put into the pit. He doesn't cry. He sold to a caravan of Ishmaelites. He doesn't cry. He runs away from Potiphar's wife and thrown into a pit unjustly. <laughs> he refrains from weeping. Even when he's left to rot in jail, abandoned and betrayed by Pharaoh's butler, he doesn't weep. And these episodes, you know, he could have easily have weeped and had pity for himself and his situation. So what, what makes this more poignant, and this I picked up from Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, beautiful, beautiful insight, is the fact that this crying occurs at a particular moment in his career where we might have thought paradoxically that he would have been crying out of self-pity uh, previously when he had such a life of peril. 
It is not his own peril that moves him to tears. His weeping begins when the drama of the brothers intensifies, when he finds himself in an encounter that is less dangerous, but of far greater emotional significance, the renewed encounter with his brothers. And this period where he was cut off from them lasts more than two decades. So what is happening to him during those two decades? He emerges as a firm, determined, energetic leader, the embodiment of pragmatism and achievement. And yet in the depths of his heart, there is a longing for his father's house. He names his two sons, right? Ephraim and Manasseh, representing one, a rejection of the past. Let me put my past behind me. Right? I, God has allowed me to forget the trauma of my past. And then Hephrasi, Ephraim Hephrasi, he may be fruitful and multiply. Those two boys represent him in Egypt as accomplishing much in his life. And it didn't come at the cost of tears. It is only when he has to confront the trauma of his wound, the repressed wound that he has been holding for so long that he now has to break down in successive motions towards the climax of his meeting his brother. It is only when he comes face to face with his brothers again that he wants and needs to weep. All that has been forgotten floods back into his consciousness. In place of the comforting thought that God has caused me to forget, he is hit with the impact of post-traumatic pain, the memory and the suffering. And this encounter opens a Pandora's box as he wrestles with his own demons. I love the insight by Ravaron Lichtenstein. And yet his interpretation for me doesn't go deep enough in the sense of what that trauma, that Pandora's box is. For Ravaren Liechtenstein, it seems that Yosef's inner chamber, the weeping bursting forth with intensity, is that sense that when Yosef reveals himself to the brothers and cries out of sheer emotion, it's a release. For him, it's cathartic. And he has to restrain himself and not restrain himself. And he take, takes basically an approach that the Rashbam had told us about. The chasm between his inner being and the external appearance. Now, Ravara Lichtenstein had a very complex life. First of all, he was the son-in-law of Rav Yosheber. I used to see him when he came to Boston to visit his father. Sometimes he came with his father who was uh, came from Germany and I would walk with them. He did a PhD in a romantic poetry and his integration of uh, Torah with literature is legendary. And then he makes Aliyah and he starts the Alon Shfut Yeshiva and that is a modern Orthodox Zionist high-grade Yeshiva. I would say it's the Harvard of Tzioni yeshivas. And if you go to Virtual Base Medrash online, which I do for my tough ditty every day, there are gems, gems there and great scholars who understand literary techniques as well as modern sensitivities and yet religious. And nevertheless, you know, in Israel, it's a polarized world and you have the Haredi world and you have the non-from world. And he had to span this 
modern centrist orthodoxy, which has ceased to exist, of course, in America. And so I think he himself had to play this role between this integration, between integrating yourself in a secular society and yet his inner being being torn apart. And I think that that that's his interpretation of the Joseph story because I think that he himself saw himself, in a way, uh, as a Joseph figure in Eretz Israel. The story of Joseph's weeping is a stirring tragedy, full of lessons, he says, brimming with spiritual, psychological, and social significance. His weeping conveys the inner reality of a person who allows himself to lower all barriers with which a person tends to surround himself. By weeping, Yosef allows his inner self to break through and to rise up. Yes, but then the weeping reflects a wound. Tell us about the wound. <laughs> we too surround ourselves with barriers, preserving and protecting our individuality and independence, our inner reality. We too live in a state of perpetual restraint. And we must learn from Yosef how to overcome our restraint and allow the spiritual essence within us to have its say. I mean, okay, okay, pretty good. <laughs> He's a public figure, but that doesn't do it for me. I have to go to Zornberg, who, with the same background, a PhD in, in, in 19th century romantic poetry, to open up the wellsprings of his soul because she also has read Winnicott and Jung and the psychodynamic deeper aspects of 20th century. And so for her, she compares that first and second scene, the first scene where he's able to restrain himself and the second scene where he's unable to restrain himself. Do you see that? So she's now going to compare the turning away and then hurrying out for the compassion. And for her, this control and then loss of the control. She says, there is a plot afoot to reveal his brother's response to Benjamin under duress. And now comes what I love. Repressed memories of their cruelty to him rise to the surface as their responsibility to Rachel's other son, Benjamin, is tested. Will they abandon him as they abandon Joseph? This question of abandonment, alienation, rather than active cruelty, is the essence of Joseph's plot in its final stage. Absolutely brilliant. His plot is to determine, through an FBI level of entrapment, whether their treatment of Binyamin was the active cruelty that they had done to him. And now... When Judah offers himself in the place of Benjamin simply because it is unbearable for him to witness his father's anguish, if he should return without him, Joseph now bursts out into a weeping in which he cannot restrain himself. As on previous occasions of weeping, Joseph has time before his tears overwhelm him to make preparations. Turn around, body posture, go into another room, hide out of earshot. But this time, he could no longer control himself. He cannot hold himself to his own scheme. Brilliant! The implication is that his plot collapses prematurely. And instead of withdrawing, this time he sends away onlookers. And the passion of his tears is almost orgiastic. A whole verse is given, we went through that, to the description of his weeping as it echoes through the palace. 
there is an intensified sense of the mystery and the anarchy of tears. One can only imagine the terror and strangeness of those moments. His weeping, and now the punchline, is an eruption of the pain of his loss, intensified to a point that compels him to give up the masquerade. It is prompted by Judah's repeated evocation of his Eneno, he's no longer with us, he's not with us, and of its effects on his family. In the Hall of Mirrors, Judah speaks of his father, and I, alas, was torn, he was torn by a beast. He remembers the rememberings of his father, and I think that she has got it right on, that by making himself strange, by using an interpreter, by disappearing to his brothers, he's he now finally, paradoxically, gains access to his lost self. And then he finally says, I am Joseph, Ani Yosef, Vichai. That's the nadir, that's the point of the high point. And she then considers this a therapeutic narrative. And I love that. The only thing I would do is stretch that and say, well, that therapeutic narrative is a spiritual roadmap for ourselves as we deal with our losses and our abuses and our past genetically, epigenetically, that the therapeutic narrative, the distance between you and me, allowing God to take up the slack of that distance, out of the brokenness comes a rethinking of the past, a redeeming of the past, and a hope for the wholeness of the house of Jacob, which is, going back to the chiasm, the genealogy. So the framing narrative around that genealogy chiasmus is the story of redemption and reconciliation. And I think that that's what Zornberg achieves in many ways that Lichtenstein did not, by going deep to the wound, going back to the wound. Now, I wanted to just share with you, because it's all about loss and how we deal with the loss in the absence. You know, when Ruff Cook lost his mother, they asked him, how come, I mean, I understand you have to mourn her loss, but how come you're excessive, excessive? I remember when Rav Soloveitchik lost his wife, he said Kaddish for three years. <laughs> you're only supposed to stay for a month. He said it for three years. And they asked Ruff Cook, how come there's an excess of sense of loss and pain? And he said, she was the only one who said, mein Kind, my child. Rough Cook, the great Rough Cook, the greatest, for me, the greatest Gadol of the 20th century, who opened us to the worlds from Valozhin to Lubavitch to modern Zionism to his own Kabbalah that he'd learned with the Leshem, and he melded it into a futuristic program for Am Yisrael as it returns to Eretz Yisrael. He mourned that deep loss. And why? Because she said, mein Kind. Now, I was with my father last week. And, uh, you know, he's turning 101. And I want to share with you this uh, sense that I had sitting next to him in the lounge where, you know, my mother used to, the room where they sat together, where she did all her painting and artwork. And so I just want to share this with you because I think that this goes to the heart of what Joseph, what was evoked in Yosef's tears. So I hope you'll permit me to share this with you. Uh, sitting next to my father, holding his hundred-year-old crafted hand, he strokes mine gently, knowingly, in silence. 
I bow my head to kiss his hand in sheer deference to this Prussian survivor. No words need be spoke. He cannot hear. All has been said. All is left now to be present, to pay homage. We look at her picture together. A book dedicated to her memory has her portrait. We both stare at it and at each other, appreciating what we both mourn. We share the same loss, but in such different ways. In fact, this picture has her portrait looked down from every wall, as do her drawings and watercolors of flora and fauna, a veritable gallery of her perception of the world where she once toiled despite her failing eyesight. These testaments to her once presence force me to conjure her slender violin fingers in mine on this same couch, despite her now physical absence. I feel her absence here more than anywhere else, and this overwhelming sense of her presence clouds my ability to heal the knife-like pain in the chest that has resurfaced from those early days of mourning, as if her shimmeric vitality emerges from the walls, opening the wounds of the heart once more. I feel like I am in the Van Gogh immersive, which allows no escape. Yet in her very absence, even now, she once more teaches me. In this unbearable absence, her ghostly spirit nonetheless present, showing me a theology she never articulated. Always being a God-believer, and more so after the Six-Day War, a fierce advocate for Zionism, and she blessed people constantly in her waning years, yet never professed any creed. Mother is showing me a path I have read and learned and studied about, but never experienced. Through her excruciating absence and my painful longing, in that deep chasm of loss, how I must cast aside any intellectual grasp, any attempt to make sense of the nonsense, any hope to resolve the pain of loss through the tincture of time. Mother is teaching me in this immersive to fully embrace the feelings of the eternal broken heart to realize that any solace must come from the infinite distance of her not being here, and in my yearning, suspended in my inability to let go of her. In her absence, despite her presence, in her absence, despite her absence, she is most present to me. Here in her apartment, a mausoleum of sorts, she once again is teaching me Reb Nachman's paradoxical theology, the parable of the mountain in the spring, in ways I never experienced. For according to Weiss, it was precisely God's absence that allows for faith. No experience of mystical union or intellectual reasoning. We don't allow ourselves those luxuries. It's an anti-theology, if you like. The only hope in the Kafkaesque despair of the yearning not the learning or understanding, that this was the only path to finding the light of his presence. This she taught me through her loss in the heart. Over the infinity of space and time, Simon Weil writes, and I'll end here, 
The infinitely more infinite love of God comes to possess us. He comes at his own time. We have the power to consent, to receive him, or to refuse. If we remain deaf, he comes back again and again like a schnorrer, like a beggar. But also like a beggar, one day he stops coming. If we consent, God puts a little seed in us, and he goes away again. From that moment, God has no more to do. Neither have we, except to wait. We only have to not regret the consent we gave him, that nuptial yes. I think that was the most poignant thing ever that Simon Weil wrote about. So I leave you with this thought. You know, there's a machlokis in the Gemara, whether you start with eight candles and you go down to one, which historically should be, right? We found this large jug of oil, so it's, it should be decreasing amount of oil every day. And yet we go like Beis Hillel. Why? Why do we start with one and go to eight? And I think the answer is in Yosef's tears and in this pain of loss, the loss of the Beis Amikdosh. Hanukkah is the last celebration in our historical record that we inscribe in the code of law. And what is it about Hanukkah? It occurs and it must occur in the tkufa of the darkest time of winter, the dark night of the soul. And so when we start with Hanukkah, we just start with one. And through the paradox of dealing with our loss, the inner loss, the outer loss, the cultural loss, the genetic loss, and dealing with it through the reconciliation with our inner child, the reconciliation with the past, slowly we build up the lights of Hanukkah till Zeus Hanukkah. It allows us to reconcile with our past, reconcile with our wounds, the reconciliation with our inner brothers who we betrayed, who have betrayed us, the harm we've done to others, the harm that was done to us, uh, it allows us to, in the space of these dark days, to make some light in the darkness, the light of reconciliation, the light of seeing through the pain. And in the absence of the divine, in the absence of the mother, mein Kind, the only one who said to me, my child, that inner child, we're able to find reconciliation through the yearning of the loss. Thank you. Have a wonderful Hanukkah. Love you all.